We'll be looking today at um, the second chapter of First Peter, again, verses 4 through 10. But before we go there, I'd like to give you a little bit of context. First Peter was written to a group of churches, and it seemed that they were in a time of trial. It was a time of persecution for these Christians. In, early of the, in view of these trials, Peter encourages them and us to do several things. First, he calls us to set our hope in Christ and the glorious inheritance we have in him. Yes, there are trials, but they, they pale in comparison with the glory that awaits us. And we are guarded by his power through this time. Second, Peter calls us in various ways to live holy lives in the face of suffering. The word holy is used repeatedly in this, cha- in this book, in this letter, and speaks of, God's, of serving God in all areas of life and bringing glory to him. So in this, the midst of this letter, Peter gives us a picture of who we are as, as the church. He says, you're being built up as a spiritual house. In this picture, we are drawn to what God has revealed long ago through the tabernacle and the temple, which particularly demonstrate God's presence with his people. As the church, we are God's temple. So we'll be looking today at some of what that means. Please turn to 1 Peter 2. We will be considering verses 4 to 10 today, but for context I'll be reading the first 12 verses of that chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, we thank you for what you teach us in these words about who we are and how we can have fellowship with you. I pray that I may faithfully preach your word today and that your people may be sanctified by your word. 
Amen. So Peter uses beautiful imagery here in describing the church. In verse 4, he says that you are being built up into a spiritual house. Then in verses 9 and 10, Peter speaks in various terms of how we are God's household, God's people throughout. Peter makes it clear that Jesus Christ is our focus in all that we are and do as his house. We cannot take this passage all by itself. In speaking of us, the church, and of our relationship to Christ, Peter makes strong allusions to things that have, been, that have come years before. Peter specifically mentions sacrifices and priests, calling our attention to the sacrifices and priesthood of the Old Testament. Peter also alludes to the Old Testament in the language he uses, borrowing phrases from the Old Testament and quoting from the Old Testament. Therefore, we must understand what Peter is saying in these verses in light of what is written in the Old Testament. So, what is Peter saying in all this? Well, we are being built up as a spiritual house, a dwelling for God. That's the first point in your outline if you're following along. Uh, we are built up as a spiritual house. Peter says that we're built, being built up as a spiritual house. What is this house, and what does this picture teach us about what we are and what we are called to be? This house calls our attention to the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament particularly in light of what the Apostle Paul says in his letters. In Ephesians 2, 19-22, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Like Peter, Paul describes the church as a building that is being built up with Christ as the cornerstone. Paul specifically identifies the building as a holy temple, a dwelling for God. This idea of God dwelling with us, his people, is a point we see echoed repeatedly as we consider what the Bible says about the temple and its identification with the church. Paul also identifies the temple with the church in his first letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul once again emphasizes that we are a dwelling place for God, as was the temple. As God's temple, we are set apart, dedicated to God's service, for his glory. As a holy people, we are to be putting aside sin, serving God's, God only. I'd like to point one thing out that doesn't come through very well in our English translations. In the verses we've read so far, you is plural. The primary message in Scripture is that you together are one temple in which God dwells. Certainly there are some places in Scripture that speak of an individual as a temple. In John 2.19, Jesus speaks of himself as a temple. 
Another verse may apply the term temple to an individual is 1 Corinthians 6.19, where Paul says that your body is a temple. Now, Paul's application of this truth is not that you should be in good physical condition. Some people they like to work out because I'm a temple. Well, I don't think that's quite what Paul's message is there. But, you're, but his message, rather, is that you are to guard yourself against immoral, immorality and glorify God with your body. God's Spirit certainly dwell, indwells each one of us who are His. And in that sense, we are each a, a temple or dwelling of God. However, the primary emphasis we see in Scripture is that we together are a temple. We have been united to Christ, and He Himself, as He Himself is a temple, we together with Him as a unit are a temple of God. He is this cornerstone of the church as God's temple as both Paul, Peter and Paul point out, as we think about the temple and the church's relationship to it, we must always remember that we are only such as we come to Christ, and he is our focus as we come together as God's temple. So then, we together are God's temple, the place where God dwells. And this fact is stated in light of the temple of the Old Testament. So to better understand who we are, let's take a look what that temple was like and what its significance was. And in looking back at that temple, let's look further back at the tabernacle, which we can really view as the first temple. In fact, it was called that in certain places in the Old Testament. So what was it like? And what does it teach us about what God, about God and our relationship to him? This comes to our second point in our outline. The tabernacle demonstrated God's presence with his people and showed us how we can fellowship with God. The tabernacle demonstrated God's presence with his people and showed how we can fellowship with God. The design of the tabernacle was give, given directly by God and it was built as a, at a critical time in the history of the nation of Israel. The nation had been in Egypt for about 400 years and had grown from a small clan into a very large multitude. There they were made slaves. But through Moses, God had power, powerfully delivered Israel from slavery and was now establishing them as a nation, as his people. More importantly, God is establishing how this people could relate to him. And this is no small thing. Since the fall, we are corrupt in every part of our being. How can we, as a sinful people, have fellowship with a perfect, holy God? So, in giving us the tabernacle and establishing them as a nation, first of all, God gave Israel his moral law, commands which reflect God's character, and the people would have to obey in order to please him. However, since the Garden of Eden, no mere man could ever perfectly obey God's law. So God also specified a system of sacrifices. They were not sufficient in themselves, but they pointed to a way that a sinful people who had broken God's law could be made right with God again. These sacrifices pointed to Jesus Christ, who offered himself as a sufficient sacrifice once for all. Then God established his presence with his people. He himself would go with them. Though God is present everywhere, he would, in a very special way, demonstrate 
his presence among his people. He would make his presence known and he would have fellowship with his people. The tabernacle was central in this demonstration of God's presence among his people and in showing how we may approach him. In Exodus 25, we read about the preparation for the temple and its significance. In Exodus 25, starting in verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, goat's hairs, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrance incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. As these verses tell us, the tabernacle was to be made as God designed. The people were not to just to build a building that they thought would be nice, but they were to be, build the tabernacle as, exactly to God's specifications. We come to God on his terms, not our own. The tabernacle was to be made of the best materials. But most importantly, note the stated purpose for the tabernacle in verse 8, that I may dwell among them. The tabernacle meant that God would dwell with his people. He was not a God who would be somewhere far off out there, but he would be right there with them. The structure of the tabernacle, which was in the form of a tent, show the people how they could approach God. Upon entering the gate of the outside court, one would first come to an altar where the priests would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. God's law had been broken, and we are under his judgment. In order for us to have fellowship with God, our sins had to be dealt with. The altar pointed to a provision for the punishment of our sin by the sacrifice of another. The sacrifices offered on the altar were not sufficient to deal with man's sin, but they pointed forward to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, which is sufficient. That sacrifice was acceptable to God and was sufficient for all who come to Christ for salvation. Near the altar was a basin of water called a laver, where priests would wash before making sacrifices. They had to be ceremonially clean to be able to offer the sacrifices. Beyond these things was a room called the holy place, where only the priests could go. Upon entering the holy place, one would see on the left a lampstand made of gold, which had seven branches, each holding a lamp. This lampstand likely signified the light of God's truth. You might think of Psalm 119, 105, where the writer says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We come to God by the light of his word, the scriptures. And then on the right side was a table overlaid with gold on which 12 loaves of bread called the bread of the face or the presence were placed. Alfred Edersheim says, The bread laid before him in the northern or most sacred part of the holy place was that of his presence 
and meant that the covenant people owned his presence as their bread and their life. Then finally, at the far end of the holy place was a small altar made of wood, but covered with gold, on which incense would be offered. These offerings of incense represent our prayers offered to God. And just beyond the altar of incense was a curtain which concealed a room called the Most Holy Place, or Holy of Holies. In this room was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box made of wood and overlaid with gold inside and out. Its lid, called the mercy seat, was of solid gold, with two cherubim facing the center from each end and their wings touching in the middle. God's presence was specially exhibited here between the cherubim. Number 789 says that God would speak to Moses between the two cherubim. No one was allowed even to touch the ark. No one but the high priest would enter this room, and he would only enter it once a year to offer blood from the sacrifices, which he would sprinkle on the mercy seat. The tabernacle was a beautiful work of the finest craftsmanship. Gold was everywhere. Gold was even woven into some of the fabric that was used. Now, the tabernacle would have to be carried from place to place as God led Israel through the wilderness. After leaving Israel, they went all over in the wilderness before finally coming into the promised land. And this needed to be something they could carry with them. So it was made light enough to carry, but even the wooden poles used to carry the ark and the furniture in the holy place were overlaid with gold. After the tabernacle was completed, God showed his glory there in a special way. In Exodus 40, verses 40, 34 through 35, we read, Then the tabernacle, then the, sorry, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence is an awesome thing. Throughout the Old Testament, when men realized that they had seen God, even in human form, they were amazed that they were still alive. When Moses asked to see God's glory, he was only allowed to have a glimpse of the hind portions of it. But in the tabernacle, God made his dwelling in the midst of his people. As the people would set up camp in various places in the wilderness, the tabernacle was set up right in the middle. God no longer has demonstrated his presence outside of the camp, away from the people, but rather he made his dwelling among them. Well, this brings us to the temple. The temple was more elaborate than the tabernacle, but carried the same significance. So years after the building and the construction of the tabernacle, it, after Israel had settled in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham, David asked that he might build a house for God. We read about that in our Old Testament reading. He had built a beautiful place for palace for himself, but he saw that God still dwelled in a tent. He therefore asked that he might build a magnificent house for God. He was not allowed to build the house as he asked, but was promised that one of his sons would build a house for the Lord. This promise was fulfilled after David's death by his son Solomon. 
He built the temple David had wanted to build and, and had prepared for. But this promise to David was greater than Solomon could fulfill. We need to read the description of his everlasting kingdom. The promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who also was a descendant of David. So the temple Solomon built was no longer a tent as the tabernacle had been, but it was a fixed building. It had the same essential features as the tabernacle, but it was more elaborate in its design. The walls included beautiful carvings and were overlaid with gold. Instead of one lampstand in the holy place, there were ten. Like, likewise, there were ten tables with the bread of the presence. The temple was different from the tabernacle in numbers and in scale, but in the essential elements, the temple, the temple was the same as the tabernacle. And when it was completed, God's glory filled the temple as it had filled the tabernacle years before. We read in 2 Chronicles verses, chapter 7, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the, te on the, on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and, and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered this sacrifice before the Lord. Once again, God showed his glory in the midst of his people. God demonstrated that he dwelled in the midst of his people. And this is what God had promised Israel if they would keep his commandments. In Leviticus 26 we read, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. God would establish his presence with his people and would be their God. God also demonstrated in the people, as he had in the tabernacle, his holiness before his people. Even the priests could not endure such an expression of his glory. They couldn't enter the temple when, that, when God was showing his glory so mightily there. So what do these things from so long ago have to do with us? Well, we are God's house. And we have characteristics of the tabernacle and the temple. We are now being built up into the temple of God. And what has been said of the tabernacle and of the temple can also be said of us, his church. God dwells among us. We demonstrate God's holiness. We are the place where God is especially to be worshipped. As we come into this temple, the church, we first come to the altar, to Christ. It is only through Christ and his sacrifice that we can approach God. The altar before, the Old before in the Old Testament served as a constant reminder to those that came that their sin must be dealt with and they must be made clean to come before God. As we gather together as fulfillment of that temple to worship God, we also come by way of a sacrifice. We don't bring an animal, as in the days of the Old Testament. Our sacrifice is Jesus, who gave himself up as our sacrifice 
and paid the penalty of our sin. As Peter says, we come to him first as to a living stone. We are then, as living stones, made part of his glorious temple. Peter says that as priests we offer sacrifices. Now what kind of sacrifices do we offer? We don't have an altar in our church to offer sacrifices. And as for our sin, Christ himself has made the final sacrifice. So what sacrifices do we offer today? In Hebrews 13, starting in verse 15, the writer says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We offer sacrifices to, get, sacrifices to God as we come together and sing praise to God. We offer sacrifices to God when we pray and give thanks. When we gather together on the Lord's Day, we come to worship God in the fullest sense. The temple in Jerusalem had once been the prescribed place for Israel to worship. But today, we are called to worship in the assembly of the saints, the church, the temple of God. I say this not to devalue our private devotions or our worship in families. Such worship is essential to our work, walk with God. However, our worship has its climax as we come together and worship on the Lord's Day. We also sacrifice to God by obeying God's command to love one another. Paul speaks of such sacrifices in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here Paul calls us to offer up all that we are as sacrifices. We are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. We are to set aside our own desires and ambitions and make our one desire and ambition to know God and to glorify him. These sacrifices do not earn God's favor, but they are rather sacrifices of thanksgiving. We serve and glorify God out of gratitude for the infinite blessings he has given us, particularly redeeming us to be his people. We take delight in him, and he gives us the desires of our heart. He gives us the gift of his fellowship. By coming to Christ, the living stone, we enter together into this wonderful relationship with the living God. Now Peter says that some, however, have rejected this stone through their disobedience and disunbelief. To them, Jesus is a stumbling stone. Jesus was a stumbling stone to the Jews of his day who are seeking God's favor by keeping the law. They had even added to God's law in an effort to not violate it. What they failed to realize in their pride is that they and we are incapable of keeping God's law and pleasing him. When we come to Christ, we admit that we are inadequate. We have sinned, and we deserve God's wrath. We want to think that we are okay, but people stumble over Christ because we are not okay in and of ourselves. 
Only by trusting in Christ and looking to Him for our righteousness can we be right with God. Is Jesus a stumbling stone for you? Are you trying to be right before God on your own? Are you trying to live your own life apart from Christ? Come to Jesus as to a living stone that you may have life. Those who come to Jesus are of God's household. Peter says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. From him we have received mercy when we deserve wrath. We are God's people. As such, we proclaim his excellencies, as Peter says. We come together each Lord's Day to sing his praises and to worship him together. We also proclaim his excellencies to lost world when we go forth. We are still today being built up into a spiritual house. There are more living stones being added. God calls us to make disciples of all nations. He uses us in his work. Let us pray and labor to bring others into God's household. I'd like to conclude with a couple, a few observations about houses. First, houses don't build themselves. Peter says, you are being built up as a spiritual house. We are not being built up, we are not building ourselves up into a house, but God is building this house using us as living stones. This is God's work. He uses us, but it is his work from start to finish. We are completely dependent on him. To him alone be the glory. Next, let's use our imagination a little bit. And kids, you might want to listen to me here as we think about this illustration. Um, Think of that you're walking along this road, and over there you see a window off on the side of the road. It appears to be of the best quality. It's double-paned, very well-constructed. Then you continue on down the road, and you come across a fireplace. Beautiful stonework, very well constructed. Great place. Um, and then a little further, you see a wall. Boy, it's just straight up and down. It's a great wall. And, and after that, you come to a roof. The roof's just sitting on the ground, but it's a nice roof. Believe me. Um, now, you may be getting my point already. The parts of a house are useless unless they are put together. A roof is of little use unless it is held up by the walls. A window serves no function if it's off by itself. As living stones, we serve our intended function only as we are built together with Christ as our cornerstone. Now finally, a house can tell you a lot about the people who live there. The decorations and pictures on the wall tell about what they value, what they enjoy. What books do they read? What sayings do they have on their walls? Catherine and I knew a woman in Pittsburgh who told us that as she grew as a Christian, she began to decorate her home quite differently. As she changed, her house changed too. Now when people see us, God's house, what do they see? Do they see his holiness? Do they see his love for us and for a fallen world? 
As God's house, we reflect the one who dwells in us. As we come together, may we show God's holiness. May we show his love. As we sing his praises, may we show his glory and greatness. May we, as God's house, as his household, more and more enjoy God's fellowship and presence together. In closing, hear these words from Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for dwelling within us, your people, your temple. We thank you for your work in building us up, making each of us a living stone to do your will. Thank you for redeeming us through your Son, who is our final sacrifice to take away our sin. Please work in each one of us that we may live holy lives. Increase our love for you and our love for one another. We pray that you will increase our appetite for you, for being in your presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.